the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the World of Islam podcast. My name is Amin Tais. Thank you for listening. In this episode, I would like to shift gears and highlight one of the most important, yet most misunderstood aspects of the so-called Muslim world. I have spent many episodes introducing the listener to various aspects of the early Islamic period. We have discussed a variety of fields of knowledge, including theology, ilm al-kalam, law, al-fiqh, wal-uloom al-shara'iyya, mysticism, al-tasawwuf, and philosophy, al-falsafa. We will go back to all of these in future episodes. Yet, by focusing on these fields, most of which can be termed high culture, connected to an elite, I might have inadvertently participated in sustaining a major misconception. This misconception is that those we call Muslims all have access to these scholarly debates or that these debates play the most important role in shaping the lives of every day. This is unquestionably wrong, especially in pre-modern societies, but also in the contemporary world at a large scale. I will postpone dealing with the modern world to a future date. In pre-modern societies, access to written culture was very limited. It was limited to a very small minority. The majority of the population partakes in popular oral culture, and the average member of these societies is, of course, much more shaped by the economic and social realities of their immediate environment. Here, a number of important elements must be highlighted. One is that everyday religiosity was closely tied to the local. In contrast, the major fields of Islamic thought were generally constructed in an urban landscape, in the big cities like Baghdad, Damascus, Cairo, Rai, near modern Tehran, Fez, Cordoba in Spain, etc. In the formative period of Islamic history, up to about the year 1000, which is the period we have tried to cover so far in the podcast, so in this formative period, large numbers and in some cases, majorities of populations in many parts of the Muslim empires were still not Muslims. We will spend an episode on these non-Muslim communities in the earliest period, but for now, it is useful to remember that it will take centuries for the various populations under the rule of Muslim empires to convert to Islam. A slow process that reflects both the rather natural reluctance of average members of communities to leave their identities and their communities behind, and the absence, generally, though not always, of coercion from the Muslim rulers and from their representatives, who in fact 
benefited economically from the poll tax or jizya that non-Muslims had to pay. So again, generally, with exceptions, there was no widespread forced conversions, although this is another misconception that endures in anti-Muslim discourses in many parts of the world. Now, with more and more populations joining the ranks of Islam over time for a variety of socio-economic reasons, it is also important to remember that their Islam was a popular Islam, a syncretic Islam, meaning that it mixed older local religious traditions with Islamic notions and beliefs. But these religious perspectives also reflected power dynamics, social struggles for domination or survival, and with the rise of Sufi lodges called Zawiya or Khanqa, and with the rise of saint festivals, the festivals of Al-Awliya As-Salihin, that we will also discuss at some point in the near future, the Islam of the masses will become more and more synonymous with some form or another of popular Sufism in many parts of the world. In addition, we have to highlight another problematic aspect of how the world of Islam and Muslims is approached, which is connected to the idea of seeing all Muslims as basically robots, simply internalizing the orthodox teachings of Muslim jurists and mechanically practicing the dictates of what is often simplistically termed sharia. This again is unquestionably mistaken. The orthodox views might seem rather quote-unquote normal in the writings of the jurists, particularly after the 11th century, but the reality on the ground is much more nuanced. There is perhaps no better example than the adherence to the so-called five pillars of Islam. It is very common in many introductions to Islam in media outlets, but also by Muslim activists, to put the light on the five pillars of Islam as the best representation of the lives of Muslims and the teachings of Islam. You might remember from our discussion of the juristic debates of al-ahkam al-shara'iyya, legal rulings, that Muslim jurists had divided all actions of the Muslim into five categories. Wajib or fard, mandatory, mustahab, recommended, mubah, permissible, makruh, reprehensible, and haram, forbidden. The jurists also generally divided the legal fields into what is termed ibadat, worship, and mu'amalat, transactions. Within the field of ibadat, jurists came to define a number of rituals as fard, mandatory, and as central to Muslim life. In addition to the testimony of faith, al-shahadatan, to bear witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet, which is a sort of rite of passage, a way of joining the community, there is the daily prayers, 
Salat in Arabic, Namaz in Farsi, almsgiving, if you want a charity tax termed zakat, fasting the month of Ramadan, Siyam, and the pilgrimage to Mecca, Hajj. The jurists grounded these rituals in religious texts, the Quran, and particularly the Hadith, and in what they presented as the inherited practice of the community. But despite these rituals becoming at the center of religious life in Muslim contexts, it is very important to highlight that in practice, not all Muslims fulfill them to the same degree. The reality is complex, and we find evidence of this in the works of religious scholars and preachers throughout the ages complaining about the believers in their communities who did not fulfill their rituals, warning them with God's punishment. We find evidence in the works of historians and travelers and biographers, but we also have evidence of it in the contemporary world, where anyone intimately in contact with the sociological realities of so-called Muslim communities will know that the pillars are not fulfilled consistently. In all cases, the main point here is that it is inaccurate to perceive the world of popular Islam to be a reflection of the intellectual discourses that we have come across in previous episodes. Even in practices as basic and as central as the five pillars. Thank you for listening. I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you.